Well, good morning again, and for our uh, guests here today, now is the time, if you wish, if your young children can be dismissed to children's worship, if you'd like to do that, or they're welcome to stay as well, that's up to you. Uh, my name is Sean. If I didn't get to see you earlier, I'm the lead pastor here, and we're glad to have you with us. If you are one of our guests here today, you can take your uh, bulletin, you can scan this QR code here in the back cover, and that is a way to connect directly to the staff. If you'd like to find out more about our church, we would love to sit down and have coffee with you and not tell you more about the church and Jesus or find out about you. Uh, also, if you're here today, you can, you're welcome to use that chair Bible there in front of you. We will be going through the scriptures today. You'll want to have that to reference. Today's passage is found on page 729 in that chair Bible. And if you do not have a Bible at home, you are welcome to take that one with you. Please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you uh, to have that. And so today we are finishing, not finishing, we are continuing, you wish we were finishing, we're continuing our uh, journey through the book of Matthew, an Old Testament prophet. We're going to be in Matthew chapter, Micah chapter 2. You know what, let's just stop this again, okay? Hold on. Okay, so we're in Micah, who's in the Old Testament, so let me check my crib notes here, and um, Micah's a prophet that is bringing some harsh news to God's people. It's bringing a hard word to God's people, and it's difficult to walk through sometimes. There is this nation called Assyria that is looming. They are going to invade in the future, probably about a generation away. They're going to wipe out the ten northern tribes of Israel. They're going to surround Jerusalem and besiege Jerusalem. It's not going to be a good time, and God says he is bringing this because they've asked for it. God had promised them blessings of their covenant for their faithfulness, and he promised them cursings in this covenant for their unfaithfulness. And so they have been performing rampant individual sins, unfaithfulness, and what we would call social sins, lots of injustice in the community. Last week, Donnie showed us how they are defrauding each other and taking away each other's inherited land that they're not supposed to do. This week, we're going to see some pushback from Micah's audience. We're going to see some clarity, and hopefully we're going to get some hope out of this as well. So with that, let's all look together now at Micah chapter 2, verses 6 through 13. It's found for you on page 729 in the Chair Bible, page 10 in your order of worship. This is God's Word. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever." Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. 
This is God's Word. Let's pray together. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your Word today, we do pray that You would give us truth for our growth and for our transformation as we come to a, a difficult, harsh Word that points to failures and unfaithfulness. We pray that You would give us soft, not hard hearts, that we would hear and that we would flee to You for mercy and grace. We pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus and all of His beauty in the Gospel today. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. So what's going on here is in answer to Micah's preaching thus far, these false preachers have arisen, perhaps paid for by the wealthy whom Micah's been going after, and they promise only good to the hearers. But Micah comes back and shows how God's Word calls out unfaithfulness, it calls out injustice, while promising rescue. That gets us to our theme for today. We're going to kind of work around is this. God's hard word of promise overcomes a world of pleasant lies. God's hard word of promise overcomes a world of pleasant lies. We're going to see that when we're surrounded by lies, God's word offers hard truth and a promise. So we're going to jump right in. In verse 6, we have a passage that begins with a war of words. Micah has been saying that the people of Jerusalem have broken covenant with God. They've robbed their neighbors. They've lived unfaithfully, and God is going to come in judgment. False prophets rise up. They want to silence Micah, and they say, don't preach that way. It's actually a different word that's usually used. This word kind of means like to drip or to prattle on. So don't be this constant dripping. Don't prattle on. Don't preach that stuff around here, Micah. All that loss, all that judgment. Dude, we're God's people. He's not going to do that to us. God doesn't get angry with His people. They're trying to convince the listeners that, look, God will never do what these conservative, fundamentalist, right-wing wackos say, okay? He's a God of love. Don't listen to Micah. It's all benefits. It's no judgment. All right, children still in here, and young people, I want to teach you something you can use for the rest of your life. You ready? We're going to use this. Here we go. A half-truth pretending to be a whole truth is an untruth. A half-truth Acting like a whole truth is actually an untruth. And that's what these false prophets did. Let me give you an example. These false prophets, they would probably love to quote something like Exodus 34, 6. God says this. I think I have it for you up here. It says, God reveals himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and they stop. They don't go any further because that's all they want them to hear. They don't want them to hear the rest of the story. And the rest of the story, if you know this passage, is what? The very next verse says this. Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, they gave a half-truth, verse 6, not the whole truth, verse 6 and 7, and thus it became untrue. It's all benefits, no judgment. God's not going to get you for that. He doesn't care about your faithfulness. He's all good. Micah, Mount Sinai, where God gave us his instructions, was a long time ago, man. God's not angry with us. We're his people. No one wants to hear about your angry God. Be more uplifting and practical in your preaching. 
we, we just can't believe in a God like you proclaim. And it sounds very reasonable. It actually sounds kind, doesn't it? But it's actually very hateful and unloving because what's going on is as God's people fell into sin and idolatry, it's not just that God's up there not wanting them to have fun. It's that God says, these things are going to hurt you. They hurt you in real life. They're going to bring my curses. So he sent prophets to tell them, stop it. Don't do that. That's wrong. Don't do that. That's not what God says. God says this. And instead of listening to these prophets, the false prophets lied about the truth instead of warning God's people. They assured the listeners, God's never going to judge. There's no way God's going to give this land to a bunch of uncircumcised foreigners. Micah's just old-fashioned. You don't need to listen to him. Now, we might not have a lot of prophets running around today claiming to speak for God, but there is this mist in our culture, isn't there, that if people do actually believe in God, he's typically some form of the big marshmallow in the sky who grades on a curve, right? He's the God of love and no obligation, love being, you know, how we define it, but that's not how God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself as holy, and so God's hard word of promise is going to overcome this world of pleasant lies that Micah finds himself in. And so the hard truths start about halfway through verse 7, starting with the question, do not my words do good? That's actually a shift in speaker. God is now speaking through the prophet Micah starting there. So he asks the question, he literally asks the question, Don't my words do good to a straight walker, is what he says, a straight walker. In other words, hearing the full-orbed picture of God is for your good. He's the God of grace and love and tenderness and kindness, and he is the God of justice and holiness who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Hearing that full picture helps us because God's Grace is not him sweeping evil under the rug. It's not him ignoring it. It's not him putting on his grandpa cap and going, oh, shucks, that's all right. That's not grace. God would by no means let the guilty go unpunished. So that means that his grace is he found a way for someone else to be punished instead of his people. That he found a way to redeem. That's what redeem means, to purchase back his people. And we know what they didn't know, that in the gospel, Jesus is the one who was punished for us, for our sin, instead of us bearing the penalty for our sin. See, if you don't have the backdrop of God's fierce, holy justice, the cross really isn't that impressive, is it? In fact, if you're here today and you're sitting there thinking, you know, my parents made me come, right? Oh, I don't really want to come, but kind of this habit to come and this whole God stuff, maybe God is there, but it's not really that big deal to me. If you don't think that the cross of Christ is that big of a deal, I'm going to wager you probably don't think sin's that big of a deal either, right? Because, I mean, if you don't think you need to be rescued, you're not really looking for a rescuer, right? I mean, if you're drowning, when they throw you a life preserver, you don't stop and go, is this made with environmentally friendly materials? Like, no, you're drowning. You just take it. But if you don't think you're in peril, then you stop. Like, well, is this rescue really a rescue? 
That's what the prophets are trying to do. They're trying to get people to see, you need to be rescued. You are not right. Everything is not okay. And so God brings hard truths to his people. In verse 8, he says, they assault God. In verse 9, they insult God. In verse 10, they spoil God's land. In verse 11, they lie about God. In other words, soft preaching had created hard hearts. And he gets very specific in verse 8. He says, you rebel against me like my enemies, and you treat each other like marauding troops. It's a picture of marauding troops raping and pillaging across the land. He's saying, that's how y'all treat each other. See, the vertical sin of idolatry was expressed in the horizontal mistreatment of each other. If you are here today, maybe you don't care about Christianity or God or whatever, but you care deeply about how people treat each other, I hope you see that the gas for that, the power to do something about those horizontal dysfunctions, let's call them, rests in finding a vertical source of righteousness and right. Because the God of Scripture says, it's not just that I take idolatry personally, it's that look what, how you treat each other when you don't worship me correctly. He wants to remind them of how good he's been to them. And so the backdrop of the next verse is actually found in Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 10 through 12. I have it on a slide for you. It's a relatively long passage. It says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That warning is the backdrop here to verse 9 where he comes and says, You kicked them out of their delightful houses. I gave my people a turnkey land, we would call it, right? Houses are already built. The pantries are already full. The cisterns are already dug. The vineyards are already planted. Just boom, it's yours. It was a delightful land of promise. And he says, you have treated each other so poorly, you're kicking each other out of their delightful houses. And then Donnie covered this last week that God gave the land as an inheritance to each tribe. You're supposed to stay in the tribe. You're not supposed to rob each other. And they were robbing each other. They were robbing their kids of their inheritance. Verse 9 basically says, clearly they didn't think much about God, and now their kids won't either. Here's how we put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're tracking with me. So let's look at your verse 8 and 9 there on page 11. It says this, But now my people act like an enemy. You rob the innocent, taking their things like an invading army would. You drive the women of my people out of the homes I gave them. You make me less impressive to your children. See, boys and girls, do you get how God cares about how you treat other people? You can't just come to church on Sunday and be super captain Sunday school, sing all the songs, and then go and just be completely horrible to people throughout the week. God says that's not worship. We can't just, we can't put God in that little box, can we? But we try. See, the fierce God who rescued them out of Egypt had become the mascot of their peace and their prosperity. And so each successive generation was less and less impressed with him. So if you notice on the back of the bulletin on our communications, I'm pastor. 
Donnie is director. He's working on becoming pastor. He has to be certified. He has to go through exams by the, the, our credentialing body. Think of it like board exams. And he went through part of that already. He, he took hours worth of written exams. Then he had to sit down for six hours oral exam with a small group. And then last Saturday, he got to stand before 90 people in a big group, and they could ask him anything they wanted to ask him. And there's this one elder from this one very conservative church in town that's known for being very exacting. He's a great guy, but he, when it comes to these examinations, like if he stands up, people are like, oh boy, here he comes. He asked Donnie a very appropriate question, and Donnie just, I mean, Big D just, boom, knocked it right out of the park. It was a great answer. I was like, I was like ooh, that's actually really good. I need to write that one down. And this elder stopped and goes, that was an excellent answer. Thank you, and sat back down. And those of us in the room who know this guy were like, what just happened? He never says that. What? His exacting nature made his expression of graciousness that much more emphatic and compelling. And that is the character of God Mike is trying to show here. This is the God who commands, be holy as I am holy. Whose son said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. He's very exacting. And if that background is lacking, his grace doesn't really humble us, does it? If you meet a humble Christian, you've met a Christian who doesn't think God's that holy and doesn't think they're that unholy. If we don't hear about our sin, if we don't hear about our guilt, if we don't hear about our poverty, how can the cross of Christ be a rescue? So back in verse 7, God said his word did good to those who walk straight. And now in verse 10, he says, arise and walk, get out. All you straight walkers, you need to keep walking and right, walk right out of this land. Why? Because the land is now defiled, it's unclean, it's spoiled. Their unfaithfulness against each other has spoiled the land. That's how seriously God takes what we would call social issues and injustice. Instead of it being a land of delight, God's people look around with disgust. And then he lands on verse 11. Look with me at verse 11, if you will. It says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. All right, so biblical interpretation 101. You let the text tell you what it says before you tell the text what it says. You have to understand the original hearers. Here's why I'm telling you this. About 100 years ago, American Christianity became obsessed with alcohol and wedded itself to the temperance movement. And because of that history, our American ears read verse 11 and we see the wine and strong drink and we hear sin and debauchery, Right? Right, right, this means yes, right? Okay, and ancient Hebrew would not hear that. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, when I give you this turnkey land, I'm gonna bless you with bountiful harvests and bountiful crops. You're gonna have so many grapes. And in the ancient world, before refrigeration, there's only one thing to do to keep grapes from spoiling. Just gonna put that out there. So it became, wine and strong drink became a metaphor for prosperity and blessing. So it's not that he says, y'all want preachers of sin and debauchery. It's a different sin. Y'all want preachers of health and wealth only. You don't want to hear about any responsibilities. You don't want to hear about any worship regulations. You just want to hear about good crops and good times, right? New Orleans preachers, laissez les bon temps rouler, right? Let the good times roll. That's what he wants. All blessings, no judgment. 
And Micah says, that's not how God has revealed himself. And did you notice the subtle shift in verse 11? In verse 8, even though he called them my enemies, he still said my people. But now who are they in verse 11? They're this people. This is you come home from work and your spouse says, let me tell you what your son did today. Right? He's putting some distance there. They have rejected him, so he is rejecting them because this people assaults him, insults him, spoils his land, and lies about him. It's a hard word for God to say to his beloved people. It's not a Valentine's Day card we want from our beloved, is it? But God's hard word of promise overcomes a world of pleasant lies. So finally, we get to a holy promise starting in verse 12. We get some hope in super emphatic language in Hebrew. He says, I will really, really, really assemble you all together. I will really, really gather you all together. And did you pick up those, that trilogy of I will? It says, I will, I will, I will. God the judge is also the God, the rescuer, who will take care of his faithful, his remnant. And not just a handful of people, his remnant that he rescues is going to be so many people. It's like a barn full of mewing sheep. It's so loud. Again, I'm lost on that metaphor, but I bet to an ancient agrarian nation that was a very powerful metaphor. But notice here, we have God the fierce judge, but we also have the unstoppable passion of our covenant Lord. His chosen people, his faithful, they will know him. He will gather them. He will protect them. He will bless them. Now let go of that caricature so many of us have of the mean Old Testament God who's some crotchety old guy who hates everybody and doesn't want us to have any fun. And see how God shows himself as a loving, protecting passionate for his people to thrive and when it's time to pour out his grace there's going to be this incredible multitude of recipients he says do you know God like this because this is why Jesus lived and suffered and died so he could be the bridge for us for sinful humanity and an unsinful holy God He could bring people back together by bridging that gap. Jesus is the mighty, incredible, powerful connection between sinful humanity and holy God. Micah starts to hint at that here, and then he really gets into it in verse 13. So look with me at verse 13. It says, He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So, Micah introduces the Messiah slowly here. Now he really kind of puts it in their face here that he is the breaker. He is the king and he is the Lord. And let me help, help you see what's going on here. So I want you to imagine you're going to do some work with some homeless people on, on a mission here in Richmond. Okay, so I want you to think of a really bad neighborhood. I'm not going to name it. I'll let you put that. I don't want to get in trouble. So wherever that is, you're going to go there. And you're going to like, you know, have conversations with them. You're going to pass out some food. You're going to put them in touch with medical care. You know, basically treat them like a human made in God's image, right? The ministry you're going to work with has one requirement. You have to take an escort. No one is allowed to go by themselves. No exceptions. And we have two people available to escort you today. There's no pictures. There's no descriptions. There's just a name. And they say, we have two guys available to be your escort. We have Norbert and we have Basher. Now, I know it's superficial, but in that situation, if that's all you know, you ain't taking Norbert to a bad hood, are you? Right? You're taking Basher. 
That's exactly verse 13. The ESV translates it all nice and pretty. He who opens up the breach, it's one word, it's breacher, it's breaker. It's this metaphor of forget the sheep safely together in a pen. This is now people holed up in a walled city being besieged and starving. And one is going to arise from within and he is going to break through that gate. He's going to make a breach and lead the people out to safety. Literally, verse 13 says, breaker or breacher goes before them. This remnant of lowly sheep will be turned into a cacophonous multitude of rescued people by breacher. He will actively, violently provide a means of escape for his trapped people. And notice how it describes him. He himself will become their ruler or their king. He'll lead them out in safety. Oh, and by the way, he's God himself all right there in verse 13. See, in the midst of all this junk, verses 1 through 11, false teachers, the lies, the loss of an inheritance, polluting the land with falsehood, massive injustice, God will gather his faithful together into a rejoicing huge flock and he will get them out of it all powerfully. Because God's hard word of promise overcomes a world of pleasant lies. All right, let's wrap this up. What do we do with this? They did not understand all that was promised in verse 12 through 13. It was too good. It was too amazing. And so they kind of just sort of punted it to some future golden, glorious age when God would do something amazing. But you and I have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story, right? So we can get this. Micah may have been looking back to an Assyria or ahead to when Assyria would be surrounding Jerusalem, but by the Holy Spirit, he would have us look ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus and his work. Micah ultimately points to the gospel here, even though he himself didn't fully understand it. When his people are encircled by death, trapped by sin, going to be annihilated by judgment, it is Jesus who breaks through the enemy of death and leads his people out in triumph. He becomes one of us. He enters into the siege with us so that from among us he can lead us out through the break he provides. Now if you're sitting here today, hear the warnings of this text. See the utter holiness of God, how God is completely uncompromising when it comes to sin. Long before our generation made authenticity such a big deal god has always demanded integrity authenticity being who you really are and he comes to his people and says live out the reality of your relationship with me and the fact of the matter is they did those who lived faithfully before him and others were his people and those who didn't weren't But even those who were faithful could not obey enough to meet his standards. And so in his mercy and kindness, he offered them grace where they could not earn. See, that grace given to us for free was actually earned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived the life that we all should have lived before a holy God of justice who demands that we be holy as he is holy. And then Jesus Christ died the death that we should have died before this holy God of judgment who says the wages of sin is death. 
And in his resurrection, Jesus proves that he has overcome that. And so his sin is placed, our sin is placed on him and his righteousness is placed on us so we can walk free and be adopted into God's very family. So when God looks at us in Jesus, he doesn't see all of our sin, all of our disobedience, all of our failures. He sees his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Micah doesn't know all of that. He just knows that somehow, someway, God's going to fix this with something really powerful. But you and I can see he is talking about the Lord Jesus. And so see that God's standards don't change, but don't despair. Instead, let it cause you to flee to Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel for salvation, for rest, and for mercy. In other words, the the message for Micah today is really simple. It's repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. A gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful for these reminders of how exacting you are. Now, your standards do not bend. They do not break. Lord, we pray, especially those of us who know you here today, You would once again, Father, help us see the depths of our sin and our poverty so we can rejoice in how much you have done to save us. How rich your grace is that you've given us in Christ and how we earned and deserved nothing of it. Would you lead us into deeper, more profound worship of you? And Father, I pray here today for those who don't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would have people feel the weight and the burden of their sin. That they would feel in their very bones that they do not measure up. And that you would immediately, Lord, give them the grace of Christ that they would see that if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, they are forgiven and set free. Oh, Father, would you do your work even now of building your kingdom and causing many to repent and believe. Pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.